Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. All right, here's a joke. Um, I have CDO. That's actually OCD, but in alphabetical order, just like it should be. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from actor James Franco, and we selected it to kick off this, our best of 2012 episode. Yes, believe it or not, that was the cream of this year's joke crop. <laughs> the best. The summer's drought affected even the joke crops. Apparently. But don't fret, we have real chuckles ahead. They come courtesy of guests like John Hamm, Ed Asner, Angelica Houston, country music legend Iris Dement, and others. Yes, it's an hour of our favorite moments of the year featuring conversation, food, cocktails, songs, and more. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. Now, usually at this point in the show, we bring in a journalist to tell us about one little odd news item to talk about at dinner parties this weekend. Yes, but for a best of show, one story is a paltry amount. So here is a rich, overloaded plateful of our favorite stories of the year, Mm. starting with this one from Sadie Stein of the literary magazine The Paris Review, who excitedly told us... The best word ever has been declared. The best word ever. It was crowdsourced. The blogger uh, Ted McCagg has been running a bracket for the past couple of months, and it came down to Gherkin versus Diphthong. <laughs> okay. And the winner. Yes. Diphthong. Whoa. See. Okay, well, you have to keep in mind. That's kind of lame. Well, diphthong is a, it's a grammatical term. Yeah, so the best word is a word that describes a word? That well, you have to lame. assume it was a fairly self-selecting population voting. <laughs> That's true. I would be more disappointed, but open bar is two words, and that would have been my favorite. (laughs) What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? In Dubai, you've got this amazing uh, potential to get a refrigerator magnet. You can press it when you want pizza. It's connected to a Bluetooth device. It's kind of like the pizza panic button, and your pizza is delivered. Only in Dubai, folks. Only in Dubai. Nokia, the telecommunications company, they patented a tattoo you can get that when someone calls you, your tattoo starts to itch. There is a proposal to build a new bridge over the Seine. Three connected inner tubes with trampoline mesh in between. Wow. You can literally bounce your way across the Seine if this thing gets built. I'm going to be talking about the first ever bedtime story written exclusively for dogs. I'm going to be talking about Dog TV, a new pay service that you put on for your dogs to watch while you're out of the house. I'm going to be talking about how researchers started mapping the brains of dogs so we can finally know (laughs) what they're thinking. So it's Um, just like a big plate of food, I think. There's just a picture (laughs) of food. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Apparently, teenagers are drinking hand sanitizers to get drunk. I'm going to be talking about this world-class cellist. He has been accruing frequent flyer miles, not just for himself, but for the cello. Delta, after 11 years, finally catches on, and they strip him of status and take away all of his miles. Both for him and for the cello. So much for that romantic trip to Salzburg. Very sad. And now, we move on to cocktails. This is where we tell you something that happened in history, then we recruit a bartender to make a drink to serve along with it. This year, we learn the history of jeans, leotards, and matches. Also about the worst TV show in history and the fact that Bugs Bunny's voice is based on Clark Gables. It's true. Not the other way around. But the tale that sticks in our memory was about a woman named Annie Edson Taylor. Here's Michelle Philippi with Annie's story. Annie Edson Taylor definitely did not 
look like a daredevil. She was 63 years old. She wore plain dresses and kept her hair in a bun. But in October 1901, she decided to become the first person ever to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. She wasn't crazy. Well, actually, she probably was a little, but she was also desperate. A Civil War widow and retired school teacher, her nest egg was almost gone. So when she heard about crowds flocking to upstate New York for a World's Fair, she figured she'd get their attention with a stunt and then earn cash from a speaking tour. Annie had a special watertight barrel built for the occasion, lined with a mattress and a lucky heart-shaped pillow. As hundreds watched, she crawled inside, had helpers fill the barrel with compressed air from a bicycle pump, and then got dumped into the Niagara River. 20 minutes and a 170-foot drop later, she made it. Her only injuries, a minor concussion, a cut on her forehead, and probably a nightmare or two. As she reportedly said upon stepping out of the barrel, quote, no one ought ever do that again. Annie didn't quite get the payday she wanted. Some say her manager embezzled her money. Others say he stole her barrel and went on tour with it, along with a younger imposter he said was Annie. In any case, she died penniless 14 years before Social Security. So that was the kind of sad history. And after that, maybe we could use a drink. I am speaking with Soso Sukram. He's general manager at Shoeless Joe's. That is a bar on the Canadian side of the border in the city of Niagara Falls. Soso, you heard the history. What drink did that inspire? It's called the Annie Edison's Barrel Margarita. Uh-oh. <laughs> I can sense where this is going. <laughs> well, what it is really is um, a margarita, and we serve it in a mug that's shaped like a barrel. Okay, good. It's not in an actual barrel. <laughs> It's no, like, no, that would be too much cocktail for anybody. It's not 200 gallons of margarita. That's right. <laughs> okay. So the margarita is pretty straightforward. It's the lime mix, tequila, of course. and triple sec. And so we blend that to make a frozen margarita. But here's the thing. We take a small Coronita bottle, which is a Corona. Okay. But there's a mini Corona. And we turn that upside down in the uh, frozen margarita. So the bottle is standing upright, stuck in the frozen? That's right. And as you sip on the margarita, the Corona slowly uh, floats to the bottom of your barrel. So you kind of get a beer chaser slowly over time. That's right. The trick is you don't ever try and take the Coronita out of the glass. It's just going to spill everywhere. Although it, would, it seems like it might be appropriate because then it would be like a waterfall. Yeah, you can create that scene <laughs> at your table if you want to wear it. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you, there are 10 people who have survived the falls including right. some of them very recently. Did you ever meet any of them? Did they come into your bar? Yes, I met uh, Nick Wallenda. He just crossed over the falls in a tightrope. Oh, that's right. He walked on a tightrope over it. Yeah, June 13th of this year. It does say something about Annie, though, that walking over the falls in a tightrope seems less insane than what she did. Going over in a barrel is nuts. But I always say there's something about Niagara Falls that makes people want to do crazy things. I, I blame the margarita in a barrel. I think so. Enrico, it's interesting. If you washed up on the Canadian side of the falls, yeah. your health care would be free. Oh. Not so if you washed up in New York. So you're going to want to spin your body <laughs> in that true. direction. Although, you know, if you're riding a barrel over Niagara, health is probably not the first thing on your mind. Yeah, but it might be afterwards. I would have hoped so. Folks, we featured dozens of cocktails in 2012. 
You will find recipes for all of them at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. W. Kamal Bell, Carl Hyacin, and Breaking Bad's Anna Gunn are a few of the folks on the list of folks who gave us lists this year. The list of great lists is long, but we are partial to this one from Allison Pill. This year, she starred in Woody Allen's To Rome With Love and also a TV show, which we'll let her tell you about. I am Allison Pill, and I am on the TV show The Newsroom, which is a new HBO show written by Aaron Sorkin about the crew working at a cable news station. Here's my list of works of art that take us behind the scenes. Number one is Day for Night or La Nuit Américaine by François Truffaut. It's a film from uh, 1973, and it's sort of a little love letter to making movies, which is an entirely different thing than loving movies. I, for instance, love making movies. I don't even like that many movies. So for me, it's a perfect movie, because I'm like, it's so true. (laughs) Um, It's not about the movie they're making, which is something called Meet Pamela, I think. The plot of the movie is just what happens when people are in the vacuum of making a movie. That can be any number of things. It's a Truffaut new wave film, so it does often involve sex, which is never a bad thing in a movie. It's relatively 100% accurate. I mean, here's the thing about actors. Like, you stick that many charismatic people in a room, And, you know, if they've done theater, they're going to be in a massage circle within five minutes. And if they've been in film, they're going to be somewhere in a closet making out. Like, this is just the way actors are. The movie is just, it's wonderful. And it just, you know, it's all about the workplace family. And I think that's one of Aaron Sorkin's biggest obsessions. The sort of families that are somewhat chosen in the way that friends are, but not all the way. And this is sort of, I think, one of the best movies about the movie family. Number two would be The War Room, a documentary by D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hegedus behind the scenes of the 92 election uh, and the Clinton campaign. The story follows uh, James Carville and George Stephanopoulos, who are the campaign leaders, two really smart, interesting guys who make The War Room the best sort of buddy cop film if it was a political documentary ever. Besides Bill Clinton, one person really gave his campaign focus and wrote what I call a haiku five months ago. Change versus more of the same. The economy's stupid. I think if you did a nexus, it would come up in about a thousand places. <laughs> and don't forget health care. You know, I, I was kidding James yesterday. I said he's about to pass from the role of regular human being into the role of a legend. Because <laughs> probably for the first time in a generation tomorrow, we're going to win. There had never been that level of access to the day-to-day matters of elections what those campaign offices actually look like, that they're really nothing special. They might have carpet if you're lucky. 
but it's just people working, working so hard, doing something civically. It's still inspiring to see this kind of bare bones operation elect a man from Arkansas into, you know, one of the highest offices in the world. Number three is the Diary of Virginia Woolf. There's something about diaries that I think offer a real, real behind-the-scenes look. It's all the boring stuff that you couldn't necessarily see in a movie or, or any other thing that you can just pick up and spend time with. I was, I was into Virginia Woolf before I read the diaries. I had read uh, most of her novels. She wrote To the Lighthouse. Uh, many people saw The Hours, which was based on her book, Mrs. Dalloway. And the behind the scenes in this case is Virginia Woolf's house, things that she ate, trips she made. And suddenly she says, I just finished the second part of To the Lighthouse today. You have this revelation and feel comforted by the fact that like just we're all the same when we go backstage. The guest list from Allison Pill. She stars in Aaron Sorkin's aptly titled TV newsroom drama, The Newsroom. And ladies and gentlemen, we think you will agree that The Best of 2012 is an apt title for this very episode of our show. Indeed. Coming up, you'll hear from Angelica Houston, Mad Men's John Hamm, and much more. When the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. You are listening to our annual Best of episode. Yes. A handy roundup of our favorite moments from the last year. Coming up, we'll hear a story from singer-songwriter Todd Snyder. And we meet Rodriguez, the subject of the award-winning documentary Searching for Sugar Man. But first, let's take a few minutes to reflect on stuff we learned this year that we didn't know before, shall we? Yeah, for me it was Pinochle, Taekwondo, and Being Gracious. Wow. You learned, really, you learned Pinochle? That was the easy one. I'm surprised that's the one you'd pick of of those three. (laughs) Well, I've been working on Being Gracious as well. Clearly. Like just then. But no, I was referring to stuff that we learned from the guests of honor who we've interviewed on the show this year. Because, of course, we end every conversation by asking them to, yes, tell us something we don't know, either about themselves or about the world that will blow people's minds at a dinner party. And sometimes they answer literally, as was the case with actor John Hamm, a.k.a. ad executive Don Draper on the TV drama Mad Men. You know what we don't know? What don't we know? What dark matter is. We don't know what it is. We know it exists, but we don't know what it is. And there's just been, they just discovered a huge blob of it out and two, two like galaxies collided and all this dark matter came out, but we don't know what it is. Do you follow science? I do. Uh, I, I, and I have for a long time. I'm a big, I like to know why things happen and why things work. And I like to follow people that try to explain it. I'm a math. I'm a, that's why I like math because in math there are answers, um, and in science there are answers, except when there aren't. Actor John Hamm from Mad Men, yeah. with that single answer proving he is the perfect actor to portray one of the most 
existentially tortured characters on television. <laughs> Scientists, please get to work on dark matter so John yeah. can be at peace. He needs Explain answers. It. Me too. All right, so John told us something about the world, uh-huh. but other guests prefer to tell us something we don't know about themselves, some new bit of information they haven't revealed in interviews before. Yes, that is what James Franco did, for instance, when we spoke to him this year. James is, of course, the movie star, writer, and fine artist who at one point was simultaneously pursuing three different graduate degrees at three different universities. I generally, when I travel, I sleep on the couch. I don't like sleeping in the bed. Why, do, why don't you like sleeping in a bed? It feels um, really sad for, to me to go to a dark bedroom. It's like surrendering to the night or something. Like I like to fall asleep either reading or watching a film or something. Like you've milked the most out of the day or something? Yeah. That's surprising from the guy getting multiple degrees. Yeah, yeah. and part of that comes from way back, I guess, when I was 18 or 19 when I left school. And I had this feeling like I needed to prove that it was okay that I had left by working harder than I had when I was in school. And now that I feel satisfied with some of the work I've done, uh, you'd think that I would be able to relax now. But I think it's just kind of a habit now. I don't... I, I still don't like going to a bed alone. Take a vacation, man. I, yeah, I should. So, Brendan, an update. James is now a Ph.D. candidate at Yale, and he's going to teach a filmmaking class at USC this year. So he's slowing down, yeah. that's what you're saying. He's slacking yeah. a little. I'm worried about mm. him. Uh, and actually, speaking of worrying, musician James Mercer, the man behind indie rock band The Shins, apparently spent much of his youth doing just that. Here he is telling us something we didn't know about his family. I was thinking it's kind of interesting, the, the fact that my dad was a munitions officer in the Air Force and wow. became the head of the, the Inner Service Nuclear Weapons School in Albuquerque. So that's probably not something you would imagine like some pop singer's dad. Yeah, but did, could he talk about his work or was it? Um, that's another part of this story that's funny is that in Albuquerque, there are these mountains called the Manzano Mountains, the mm-hmm. Apple Mountains. Mm-hmm. There's a massive hollowed-out cavern that, wow. that like uh, GI Joe style. The U.S. government did. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm guessing it is yeah. like one of those Lex Luthor type, yeah, you know, yeah. NORAD type things. So for years, when the Cold War was on and stuff, and when we lived in Albuquerque, my dad would tell me he would be like, "There are no nuclear weapons in Albuquerque." But Dad, what about the you know Manzano facility yeah. and stuff? They, my friends say no, they are not nuclear weapons. So, and I believed him and I told all my friends that and stuff and they believed me. That was total disinformation. (laughs) I've learned. He was, that was the party line or whatever to lie basically. So, and it was this massive storage facility for nuclear weapons. But is no more. So you say. So say. So you say, James. You're obviously right. protecting your father. You know what I mean? <laughs> or, or I'm just again, you know, lying, putting out the ruse. James Mercer. He is both the frontman of indie pop band The Shins and possibly a double agent. That is yeah. Possible. I, he was way too nice to me. I knew there was something. Yeah. Never on. trust nice people. <laughs> no way. Ever. That's why I didn't trust the very nice British comic Simon Amstel. Yeah. Also a guest of honor on our show. Now Simon's one man stage show was a big hit in New York this summer. So the thing he claimed we don't know about him wasn't all that surprising at first. I love America. You're just saying that because you want us to love you back. I mean, I suppose, I suppose I do want America to love me back, but I just feel America... When I think about Jesus, I think, although it's geographically and historically a ridiculous <laughs> thing to say, I feel he was an American. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know, if you think about that, it's a, it's a stupid thing to say. But then if you don't think about it, feels true, doesn't it? Must Do you even been. believe in Jesus? Well, yeah, I think, yeah. 
I do. I, I mean, he existed. He was a Jew. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe because Americans like Jesus so much, you're also Jewish. You feel like, hey, if they like that if they, like, if they like that Jew, they're going to love me. <laughs> I'm even funnier than Jesus. If you think about some of the things he said, I'm funnier. Wow. Be careful. You know, the last time uh, a British pop culture phenomena compared themselves to a Christian deity. No, but they, they said bigger than. Oh, yeah, that's I'm not true. saying I'm bigger than Jesus. I'm just saying funnier. Okay. And, you know, that's not the same. That's not the same thing, right? Please, I've just got my visa. Please let me stay in the country. I'm less funny than Jesus. I take it all back. Comedian Simon Amstel backpedaling just in the nick of time. <laughs> yeah. I think. And the good news is he's never put out any albums, so no one here could burn them anyway. Even if he, they wanted to. He's safe on that score. All right. And finally, we have arrived at what is by far our favorite thing we learned from a guest of honor this year. It came courtesy of Oscar-winning actress Angelica Houston, star of the TV show Smash. I'll, I'll get really personal and say that I have a penchant for green underwear. <laughs> I did not expect to learn that today. <laughs> but, See? <is> there, <laughs> there are things you don't know. Is there is there a reason? I think it has something to do with, you know, hoping for good luck or something. <laughs> oh, that's I, right. I read years ago that Peter O'Toole wore green socks, and I know it's something to do with being Irish. I was going to say you were brought up in Ireland, so you carry a little bit of the Emerald Isle with you at all times. Indeed I do. Angelica Houston. Sure was. <laughs> Rico, I remember the first time I listened to that interview, and I really respected your response. You know, the, I did not think I was going to learn that today. Yeah. It was very, very graceful. Thank you. But it was also true. It was, it was yeah. just a moment of unexpected enlightenment. For all of us. I, I think so. Okay, so to recap, we still don't know what dark matter is. Yeah. James Franco is a vampire. The Shins are communists. Jesus is American. And, you know. Yeah, about Angelica. This year has been an education, hasn't it? <laughs> And uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to learn stuff about us or this program, head to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. This is the part of the show when we overhear authors and artists tell a dinner party worthy tale. And among our favorites this year came from folk musician Todd Snyder. He's known for his great live shows and for the stories he tells between songs, like this one. Hey, everybody, I'm Todd Snyder, and I've been traveling around this country for more than 15 years. I make up songs, and I sing them for anybody that'll listen to them. I'm going to tell you today the story about how I got to meet my uh, brother's hero, race car driver Bill Elliott. I was playing an outdoor concert in Chattanooga in the town square singing a folk song, the sound man can talk to the performer through the, those monitors. says, do you like NASCAR racing? I kind of lean over to the side and nod towards the soundboard that, yeah, I do. And so he says, would, would you like to meet Bill Elliott? And I knew at that moment that was my brother's hero. And I said, sure, I would like to. And I'm not really a NASCAR fan. It doesn't seem that hard to me to drive 200 miles an hour and turn left for six hours. But my brother is into it, you know? He comes up after the show, there's that room, we have a room almost every night where there's free whiskey and a towel and like celery and ranch dip and stuff where the musicians sit. And so when we're back in the room with just sitting around cooling off after the show and he comes up the stairs with the sound man and before he even says hello to us, he's knee deep in our ranch dip and he's made himself a huge whiskey and he doesn't even really say good show. And 
I said, you're Bill Elliott, this is cool. And, you know, I gave him my guitar and I said, I was going to see if you'd sign it, you know. And he signed his name across the whole front of it and kind of ruined it. So I don't even, can't even use that. And I, I think, oh man, but you know, I'm being cool because like I said, it's my brother's hero. Then I get the idea, I'll call my brother. So I call him and we wake him up in the middle of the night and I say, you're never going to believe who I'm here with. And I hand him the phone and I don't know if you can put foul language, but I don't even repeat in public what he said to my brother on the phone. That's how bad it is. You know, he just said some of the foulest stuff. And it wasn't like he was cussing at him negative. So it, it was almost more like, a you know how Texans, when they like you, they'll hit you, you know, in the shoulder real hard. Like, you're like, what? Or like, you old scum dog, son of a you, that kind of thing. But it went way off into the, it got a little gross, you know. My brother said, oh, my God, Bill Elliott. I think I could tell he was like, well, wow, you sure seem to have gotten Bill Elliott drunk. So we we go over to this bar, and uh, we sit in there, and uh, the bartender comes over, and we're like, whatever you want, man. And uh, Bill Elliott orders up the most expensive thing they had, almost like a joke, you know, like now. And we're like, what is with this guy? Then we're sitting there chit-chatting, asking about race and stuff, and he... He says, excuse me, fellas, and he gets up to go to the bathroom. And as he's in the bathroom, the bartender comes over to us with, like, this worried look on his face. He goes, hey, that guy didn't tell you that he's Bill Elliott, did he? Because he's not Bill Elliott, and he does that all the time. And me and my friend looked at each other, and I went, oh, man, you know, that's not my brother's hero at all. We've been so nice to him. But I realized in that moment, my brother's hero. Now I have a hero. Lots of people drive fast and take a left. It takes a lot of to steal celery and stuff as if you're somebody else. Singer-songwriter Todd Snyder, he is on tour now to support his latest album, Agnostic Hymns and Stoner Fables. And you are listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. Honest. If I had a nickel for every dime you had I'd have a half of your money You talk about not half bad And now it's time for Chattering Class, in which we're schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic, and we learned a lot from this segment this year. Yeah, like the fact that New York air is made largely of fat particles. That's right. Yeah. Not all of it was fat, which I found surprising. Yeah, that was weird. But the <laughs> coolest thing we learned was the story of the mostly unknown folk rocker Rodriguez. He was the subject of the documentary film Searching for Sugar Man, which many critics list among the best docs of the year. It recently won the International Documentary Association's Award for Best Feature of 2012. Here's the conversation I had last summer. And by the way, there are going to be a lot of spoilers coming up. In fact, just by introducing one of these people, I'm giving away a major twist of the story. Uh, we've first of all got the director, Malik Benjelou. Hello. And the musician himself, Rodriguez. It's an honor. Hello. We could go, yeah, no, thanks. You are alive. Yes, very much so. <laughs> Which is not entirely clear for much of the film. We'll get to that. Yes. Uh, first, Malik, I wanted to ask you, you are a Swedish filmmaker how did you come upon the story of this almost completely unknown 1970s-era Detroit musician? I, I quit my job in 2006, and I went traveling with a camera looking for stories, you know, backpacking. And, then, okay. and in Cape Town, I found a story. And I was like, wow, this is the best story I ever heard and ever going to hear in my life. <laughs> Cape Town, South <laughs> Africa, of course. Cape Town, South Africa. All right, so let's back this up, though, a little. 
Let's go to 1970. I'll set up the story. Rodriguez, you put out your debut record, Cold Fact. Yes. And it's produced by some of the biggest names in the business, right? Who else do they produce? Uh, well, they produced other artists from Motown. Steve Wonder, Marvin Gaye, Temptations. Uh, Dennis Coffey was one of the producers. And in the Motown material, they used four guitarists in their sessions, and Dennis Coffey was one of them. He's an excellent guitarist. Right. And the, there were huge expectations, correct, for this thing? They expected a hit. The producers thought that they had the new villain. I mean, they, they had done Steve Wonder and Marvin Gaye, and they said, this is better. This is going to conquer the world. Sugar man, won't you hurry? Because I'm tired of these scenes. For a blue coin, won't you bring back all those colors to my dreams? Silver magic ships you carry, jumpers, coke, sweet Mary Jane. And the album yeah. flops immensely. <laughs> it's It flops yeah. so much, it sells like 50 copies. And he makes another album, same result. So he stops and he starts to work in, in construction uh, in Detroit and never learns that somehow one of those albums gets to South Africa. And in South Africa, Rodriguez becomes more famous than the Rolling Stones. Not just that, uh, Rodriguez, you, you were kind of this mouthpiece for the anti-apartheid movement. That's what I've been told, but I didn't know about that. My lyrics are uh, just speaking to that environment. Sixties and seventies, cities were ablaze. The students are burning the draft cards, resisting the draft, going to Canada, shot and killed for demonstrating against the war. And so, the seriousness of these kinds of things, I think, was parallel in the seriousness of what was happening in South Africa. So your music becomes this rallying cry in South Africa. But meanwhile, they don't know anything about you, and they think you're dead. (laughs) Everybody's got this album that they love, but they all think you're dead. What are are some of your favorite legends of your so-called death? Oh, Ricky Galliano. I don't have any favorites about it. But one of them was (laughs) that uh, I had burned myself up on stage. I went up in smoke. Literally. But I didn't know about these myths. What what happens is that in South Africa, Rodriguez is as famous and as dead as Jimi Hendrix. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the situation for 30 years. And yeah. after 30 years, there's a, in the mid-90s, there's a detective, a musical detective who'd want to know how did Rodriguez die. Because in South Africa, everyone knows he's dead, but there are different versions on how he died. And yeah. after years of, of a search, he finds the producer of the album and, and he calls him and he's, you know, how did he die? And the producer's just, no, I, I just saw Rodriguez this morning. He's living down the street. Well, I'm curious, actually, what some of these South African fans felt about meeting the legend. I mean, part of what makes a cult hit like this is that air of mystery. It was perfect. They didn't know about him. He was dead, so they could make him into anything they wanted. How did the reality measure up to them? I mean, what happened when he first came was that people didn't first pay attention because they knew, no, 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 this is a tribute act. This is a con artist. (laughs) It can't be the real guy. It's literally like learning that Elvis Presley is alive. That was the scale of it. And then they realize it's Rodriguez. It's the most beautiful scenes I have ever seen in my life. This guy who never performed to more than 50 people in America and he plays stadiums. I I know one of the folks in the film talks about interviewing you, Rodriguez, and says he comes away a little flummoxed. Like he knows nothing more about you after that, either because you're just shy or just very private. Is it a burden kind of to have people want you to open up or maybe live up to this legend that they have? Well, I'm a musician and uh, musicians are accessible. I mean, it's... uh, 
I'm certainly out there to to meet my audiences, but I do have my private life, like, like anyone. And so I, I kind of was skeptical and resistant about the film itself. <laughs> and of course, when he came, it's impossible for someone to become the Beatles in, in one day. Yeah. I mean, of course, it's, it's, it is like the Truman Show or something. The thing was that Rodriguez took to it pretty easy. When you see him perform, he's actually not nervous. He just goes on stage and meets all those thousands and thousands of people who are screaming and crying. It's like a, like a, fairy, like a Cinderella fairy tale. I wonder how many times you've been heading out. Brendan, like that story wasn't wonderful enough, mm-hmm. the movies led to a Rodriguez resurgence here in the U.S. as well. This year he played the legendary Newport Folk Festival. Amazing. I also love how Rodriguez only goes by one name, no. but he kept calling you by your full name. That was... Nico Galliano. <laughs> That's true. Interesting he's, tick. He's a man of many mysteries. Speaking of which, ladies and gentlemen, we have many mysteries yet to explore on this Best of 2012 show, like, for instance, why Ed Asner refuses to turn his cell phone off during interviews. That and other mind games when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I am Brendan Francis Noonan. And I am Rico Galliano, and we are in the midst of our Best of 2012 show, a compendium of our favorite moments this past year. Coming up, we'll hear from Iris Dement and also Ed Asner. But first, our favorite main course. Yes, this is the part of the show where we cover something happening in food culture. And sometimes we just profile something we want to eat because we just want to eat it. Yeah, for free. It's a trick you learn in journalism school. But one of the best things I ate this year was a pretzel dumpling, courtesy of Chef Dale Taldy at his restaurant called Taldy in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. They were so delicious that I went to visit him the next day so I could have some more and also learn how he came up with them. It's a very traditional pork and chive dumpling that we pretzel the outside of the dumpling. I, was pretzeling a verb before you made these dumplings? Pretzeling, I think we've, yeah, I think we've turned it into a verb. It's basically pork, chive, a few other seasonings, and then we take wonton wrappers, cook them in baking soda, and then we brush them with egg wash, butter, and pretzel salt. And then we pan fry them in a little bit of oil, and then we bake, finish them in the oven. And the outside of the, skin, of the dumpling skin looks like a pretzel. Where did you get the idea for this? I used to work at Budokan in New York City, and the chef there is from, like, Pennsylvania, and he reps... Philly and he reps Pennsylvania real hard and you know we were kind of just fooling around and he was making pretzels and I worked at almost exclusively Asian kitchens so I was like hey I've never made pretzels before is that all it takes to make a pretzel and he's like yeah you just make your dough and then you boil them and then you pan fry them so I was just like why can't we do that with dumplings because you boil dumplings anyway and then you pan fry them or bake them so there's like a parallel process that you're like oh that's almost the same yeah. thing with some different ingredients exactly it was it, it just in my mind it is we do that with dumplings already. Why couldn't you do that with a dumpling? You know, I've always loved pretzels, so why not mix the two together? So dumplings are beloved food. They're just like comfort food. They're so fun to eat. You can eat a zillion dumplings. Pretzels are also kind of a beloved food. Why did it take so long, do you think, this pairing to happen? I mean, it was definitely like a fat kid move. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean? I mean, it's like I get like pizza and dip it in a ranch. These are like fat kid moves. Like I'm going to turn a dumpling that already tastes good and I'm going to turn it into a pretzel. Fat kid move. Did they teach you that in culinary school, fat kid moves? No, I mean, like myself, I was 145 pounds when I got to New York, and now I'm pushing 180. The, you know, you become a master of fat kid moves. I, I like how you have this pride. Why do you think other, I mean, a lot of restaurants would shy away from maybe hybrid stuff? I don't know if there's just a, a negative connotation to fusion. I can't stand behind that because that's who I am. Like, I'm an Asian-American. I grew up in Chicago and now live in New York. 
all these influence of moving, being part of a Filipino household, eating stewed oxtails and fish head stew, and then going to, going to school and being fed like square pizza and tater tots. I can love eating my mom's fish head stews, and I can love eating really like crappy square pizza and tater tots. You know, the inspiration, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's in, like inspiration is, you know, where you come from and, and how you live, you know. All right, well, can we eat? For sure. So now we've, we've blanched a dumpling right now, and we're going to... Yeah, that looks like the like really yellow, gooey butter. Uh, well, it's... An egg yolk. Yeah, it's an egg yolk, so it's egg wash first on the dumpling. And then we hit it with a little bit of butter. For health's sake. <laughs> just to add to the fat kid move. You're just going to FKM that? Yeah, yeah. FKM. And now you're not going to add some salt? And then we're adding pretzel salt. It's actually the new fleur de sel. Really? It's the new super hip salt. This pretzel salt. What what distinguishes it from uh, fleur de sel or kosher salt or? I have no idea. <laughs> I actually think it's really cheap salt, but it, it tastes so good. So now we have a pan here getting hot. A little bit of uh, oil. With most dumplings that are you know pot stickers, you boil and then you fry. Yeah. So this is the second. Now here's a kind of frying method that we're using. So you're gonna put them in. We got four of them here. You got and the, the key to these is that you get the pan really hot. Because you want to see, you basically want to sear it and get it blackened like a pretzel. Exactly. Um, and our, our ovens down here are set at like about 500 degrees. We're gonna pan sear and then put it in, and then it bakes it. These are pretty complex to make. They're tedious. They're labor intensive. When you set up the menu, were like, were you like, oh yeah, that's gonna, this is gonna kill. When I set up the menu, I was like, and then I started seeing how they sold. I was like, that was a big mistake. <laughs> Why? Because they're just so labor intensive, and no, it just it just ended up dominating the appetizer menu. I was like, oh, no one wants to order anything else, huh? But yeah, I mean, I guess this is the thing. It's like you're a rock band. You write this one silly song, everyone falls in love with it. You're stuck with playing "Smells Like Teen Spirit" the rest of your career. But you know what? You have to love it. There's worse problems. Yeah, you got to embrace it. Oh man, they're looking good. Really, until they just get golden brown, you can hear it. You can see yeah. now they're starting to get it's starting to harden. And is that foam, is that what's going to come out of my mouth when I have a heart attack? That's the uh, butter just oozing out of your arteries. <laughs> you know, everything's meant to share. So have, you know, if just two people, you're only really, you know, hopefully you're only you're eating two dumplings. But if you're being greedy, you're eating all four. But I ate all four last night. That, that was kind of an FKM. It was a fat kid move. <laughs> nice. All right, how about you eat yours and then I'll go. Man, hear that crunch? They're delicious. All right, I'm going in. Oh my god. It's so good. It is so good. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think we need to put the word fusion in the past, and I think we should just call it um, FKMs. Back it moves. So, Rico, basically, I discovered a favorite appetizer and a favorite saying. Nice, two for one. Yeah, it was a great day. Although, uh, I'm not sure whether it's polite to say fat kid moves. I think it is if you're the kid making the move, you know? Maybe. Think about it. Anyway, while we're on the topic of proper behavior, it's time for our favorite etiquette segment of this year. Indeed. Each week on the show, we have a notable someone stop by and answer your etiquette questions. And back in October, we were joined by actor Ed Asner. Brendan did the introduction. He's well-known for his Emmy Award-winning role as Lou Grant on The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Currently, he's on Broadway alongside Paul Rudd and Michael Shannon in the play Grace where he plays Carl, a cantankerous German-born exterminator who lost his family as a child in Nazi Germany. I can't believe that must have been a stretch for you to play cantankerous. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Have you heard, uh, I I just read a wonderful Dalton Trumbo quote. Dalton Trumbo, the writer. Yes, Dalton Trumbo, the writer. Okay. Who was being uh, talked over by the audience while he was giving an important speech. And so he stopped and said, do you know the difference between a cactus and a caucus? 
And they said, no, a cactus has the <laughs> on the outside. <laughs> That's pretty cantankerous. Wow. I'm going to be interested to see if the audience understands that quote with the operative word bleeped out, but thank you for giving us the opportunity. Well, oh, I'm glad I helped. <laughs> so this play... Is, is about grace, and grace isn't a person. I mean, grace, the actual, you know, divine assistance. As in saving grace. As in saving grace. Indeed. Had you given much thought to divine assistance? Is it something that occurred to you? Is that what grace means to you, divine assistance? That's what it means to um, Merriam-Webster. Oh, what does it mean to you? La-dee-da. <laughs> well, this, yeah. this is public radio. We have a dictionary on hand. Uh, yeah, yeah. To me, it means uh, artful movement. Hmm. But in this play, kind of a state of grace, I'm not through. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Uh, A state of grace, I think, would mean almost picturing one surrounded by an aura, sainthood even. He's a wonderful man, and he himself is full of grace, as cantankerous as he is. You made your Broadway debut, actually, in 1960, is my understanding, in Face of a Hero, which also starred Jack Lemmon. What, if anything, do you remember about that time? It was my first experience of Broadway, and it made it very easy for me to leave for Los Angeles after it closed. <laughs> really? It wasn't yes. fun? Oh, no, it wasn't fun. The, the, the character was only written to get laughs. The director told me the night before rehearsals began, he said, loved your reading. Of course you can't be that funny. <laughs> so he had me doing my first scene with my back to the audience. Wow. Directors wow. will do that to you. Yeah. It's very impolite. Speaking of which, we have some etiquette questions from our audience. Oops. Uh-oh. That's Ed's cell Wait phone. a minute. Who could this be? Oh, it's Philip Langner. Let me see what he has to say. Hello, Philip. I'm on the air. I'll call you when this is over. Okay? Bye-bye. So, clearly, Mr. Asner, you're the person to ask for uh, etiquette advice. Yeah. (laughs) You clearly know how to comport yourself. uh, Etiquette, well. So, we've got some questions. From what I've seen of you, your audience probably needs a lot of help. (laughs) That's true. This is radio. They don't get to see me. But I'm seeing you. Audience, you need help. (laughs) And here they are to ask for it. Uh, This is a question from Clinker. They want us to call him or her in Santa Monica, California. Not Stinker. Not Stinker, Mm -mm. Clinker. This is one of the other reindeer, Clinker. Mm -hmm. At weddings, I love clinking my glass with my fork. Oh, I see. see, Which results in a fun eye-rolling kiss from the bride and groom. But sometimes other guests shoot me dirty looks as though I've just spilled punch on the bride. Has this tradition become passé? I always thought it was a harmless and a fun rite of passage. I think it's a wonderful rite of passage. I think it's a... A wonderful, gentle-sounding custom to observe. And uh, those who are objecting to it must be tight. <laughs> <laughs> so I would dismiss them, and they shouldn't have been invited to the wedding anyway. Yeah, that's how I feel. I mean, this is a, it's a really elegant way to kind of, it's an old tradition. To we interrupt. don't get those kind of people down in Santa Monica. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> nah. That's a New York thing. Yeah. Sure. Although I, will, I do wonder, is it possible to do too much glass clinking? Where if you're the bride or groom, you might think, who is this guy who's so perverse he wants to keep seeing us kiss over and over again? Oh, right. I'd say to hell with you. I'll kiss her when I'm ready. Exactly. All right, well, here's another question. This is from Bob in Chicago. Um, that's where I, that's my wild oats town. Good times? Chicago, good town? I love it. Yeah. Really? I haven't, I haven't been in a long it's my time. my favorite city. No offense, Gotham. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, wait. There's another call. <laughs> who, who could this be? 
Oh, we'll find out later. <laughs> They're on. <laughs> Thank you. That's very polite of you. Thanks, Ed. All right. So uh, Bob from Chicago asks, if someone's telling an amazing story and I know that they're stretching the truth, should I bring it up? I worry because it just makes me seem like a party pooper, but some folks take poetic license too far, I think. I know that feeling. I would think the appropriate thing to do, if you like the person, if you respect the person, let them have free reign. All right. Mm. Let them have their fun. And if you don't like them, cut them off at the pass. <laughs> okay. Expose them for the bull <laughs> they are. <laughs> so it's a subjective choice. There's no larger ethical way to play this. If you like the person, let him go ahead. Yes, because he probably needs the attention, and he's mm. probably doing it in an entertaining fashion. Sure. The guy you don't like is probably a blowhard. <laughs> now, I imagine as an actor, you encounter this situation a lot, people <laughs> stretching the truth. Well, I went to see Jews telling old jokes. Mm -hmm. I knew every one of those jokes, but it was wonderful to sit there and hear those jokes. That's a, that's an off-Broadway play where Jews tell yeah, jokes. Yeah. yeah, And so you didn't interrupt him. You didn't go, I heard that one already. Yeah, well, Enough. We, we all knowingly nod to each other. And, <laughs> and even the Goyim knew what uh, the jokes were. How how important is it, for God's sake? That's yeah, true. that's true. All right. All right. There you go, Bob in Chicago. And now we turn to Mark in Paris. How do you feel about Paris, Ed? I love it. All right. Called the Chicago of France. <laughs> <laughs> Mark asks, how does one deal with people who knew one when one was much younger and who are shocked that one has aged? So they come upon you and they're like, oh, my God, you've aged. And my response to that would be that because of my sexual activity, it is it has just taken a terrible toll on me, but I can't stop. I just, I mean, the, it will do it. You know, it's like distance runners. They may be very, very healthy, but they look like the most haggard people in the world. Well, that's what sex does to me. Okay. Oh, man. This is, uh... It's age, aged me enormously, but it doesn't mean I'm going to die. And then you say, oh, but you look really young. You look so yeah, young. Yeah, you look so fresh. young. Clearly, you're not getting any action. You really do. <laughs> I thought I turned it off. <laughs> God, All right, Ed Asner, thanks for answering our listeners' <laughs> etiquette questions and your phone. Who is this? Actor Ed Asner, he co-stars in the Broadway play Grace, ironically enough. That show ends this week. Rumor has it because audiences tired of his ringer constantly going off during performances. <laughs> Folks, we are nearing the end of this best of show, and we have yet to share some music with you, so let's do that. Yes, most weeks we invite a musician to stop by and list some tunes to play at a dinner party. Mm. Guests like Sharon Van Edden, indie band Dr. Dog, and one of our favorites this year, country legend Iris Dement. Yeah. This fall, she released her first album in eight years called Sing the Delta. Here she is to suggest tunes from other artists. This is Iris Dement, and I'm going to spend a little time with you here today on the dinner party talking about songs that I've been known to play around supper time, and if you were at my house, you just might hear one or two of them. The first song I've chosen is a Willie Nelson recording of a Tom Waits song called Come On Up to the House. Come on up to the house. It's a great melody. Everybody's singing their butts off, but apart from that, I like what it says, and it talks about, you know, creating this safe place where you invite folks you love to come and um, leave their worries outside. I know you're crying, it don't do no good. Come on up to the house. 
I'm the last of a lot of kids. I'm the last of 14. You know, there were a lot of hefty women in my world. My Aunt Vanita, you could come over there, and five minutes later, there was a spread you wouldn't believe. If 40 people were there, she could feed them. And my mom and all these women in the kitchen made me feel just safe and loved and cared for by way of feeding me. And um, I feel that in this song. So the second track I've chosen is How I Got Over by Mahalia Jackson. And there are two versions of this song, and the other one is by the amazing, wonderful Aretha Franklin. When I hear Mahalia sing it her way, you feel like it's from the perspective of a woman who's lived a long time. And she has already gotten over. Her plane's been up in the air, and it's coming into the landing. Aretha's version, it's like she's, um, I wouldn't say trying to get her plane up off the ground. She's up there in the air, but she's still just not quite sure she's going to make it. So there's a lot of juice and oomph, you know, to the thing. I would save that one for after the supper, when the party gets to rolling. You know, you just got to get up on your feet when you hear this one. third song that I'd like to play for you is one that was written by Greg Brown. This song is called The Cheapest Kind. Mama fixed the soup beans and served them up by candlelight. I heard it come on the radio one night and I remember looking out the window into the dark prairie and saying to myself, if I ever could figure out how to write a song, I would want it to be something just like that. But the love it was not the cheapest kind It was riches, 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 riches Any you could ever find I had given up on trying to write and when I heard that song it reminded me of how much I wanted to do what he was doing and then, um, you know, surprises abound next thing you know, what, 15 years later we're married Well, I think the last song we're going to do here is one of my own songs that's off of my new record. It's called Go Ahead and Go Home. Don't take that personally. Go on ahead and go home. God, you know, it's funny how these things come to you. It just occurred to me that that's the first track on my record. Somebody should have talked to me about that. It's too late now, isn't it? Go let your mama see you smile. A dinner party soundtrack from Iris Dement. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the best of the dinner party for 2012. Thanks to all who listened to us this year. And hello to all of you hearing us for the first time on this, the first weekend of the new year. Yes. Welcome to KUT in Austin, WMPN in Jackson, Mississippi, WEKU in Richmond, Kentucky, and WCBX in San Luis Obispo, California. I want to be in all those places right now. Uh, Let's do it. (laughs) Jackson Musker is assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Tamika Adams and James Kim are our interns. Thanks, Bill Lance, Peter Clowney, and our friends at the Public Radio Show Marketplace. Bon appétit.